0: We are continuing our sermon series called Truth in Love. You can't have one without the other. If truth is found in love, then we can't say we're being people of truth if we're not loving. If truth is found in love, then we can't say we're being loving if we ignore truth. It's not just that they can coexist, they can't exist apart from one another. We can have conviction and compassion, to use the words of Rick Warren. A few years ago, uh, Pastor Rick Warren said in regards to more of the conflict regarding religious freedom and religious issues and tension, he said this, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you agree with everything they believe or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate. And we believe that's true even if the people around us don't. Even if we live in a day and time that says, no, you must fully agree with everything a person does or else you're hateful. We think that's illogical. We don't agree with everything we do. Right? And and we, we have, have grown to now disagree with things we used to agree with. We think people have the right to grow and, and move in their positions. This isn't an issue of compromising conviction and compassion. We can't have one without the other. But there's a big difference between truth and love and one to the exclusion of the other. The way that Chris Hodges, the author of The Daniel Dilemma, said it is this. He said, often we mean well but we don't love well. I think that's such a great statement. In the the book, Daniel Dilemma deals with the difficult topics we've been exploring here these last several weeks. and I love that phrase, as heartbreaking as it may be, often we mean well, but we don't love well. And with many of these issues, we've watched that be true within the church. We've watched us mean well and, and not love well. And I'll share a story with you from my childhood where I meant well. But I didn't, I didn't love well. When, we, when I was going into middle school, we moved from New York to Atlanta and we lived on a cul-de-sac and uh, got to know people. I, I got to know my neighbors back then because I played sports. And when I say I played sports, I mean like outside with real humans, not digitally with virtual competitors like I played sports. So I was always outside outside. And because of that, I got to know my neighbors. And the, the one specific house across the street from our cul-de-sac was a single mom raising two elementary kids. And so the, of those two kids, one was a boy and one was a girl. And, and the boy used to come out and be like, hey, teach me how to play basketball. And I grew up as the baby brother. I was always asking my older siblings, hey, teach me how to do whatever you're doing. And so that felt natural for me. I'm like, yeah, man, come on. You're cool. And it meant a lot to his mom. and He didn't have a father figure in his life at all. And she's raising these two kids, although not alone. Her, her cousin lived there with her, helping her out with, with her kids. We built a relationship over time. And one particular weekend, I remember the Holy Spirit convicting me that I'd known them for a couple of years. And i had never once had talked to them about their faith. I'd never invited them to church. I'd never asked them if they've entered into a relationship with Jesus. And it just was kind of eating at me. And so one particular weekend... Um, the not the mom of the children, but her cousin was out working in the yard. And so I was out playing ball. I saw her and I went over and said, Hey, I know I've never talked to you about this. I know I'm just a kid, ninth grader at the time. But here's the deal. Uh, I just want you to know, if you're looking for a church home, we'd love for you to come with us. I'm not sure where you at on your spiritual walk, um, but but I just want you to know, we we'd love for you to, you can come sit with us. We'll go to lunch afterwards. My parents will pay for it. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> if you just want... Uh, your niece and nephew or whatever to come along. They, they, my, my mom would be happy to give them a ride, I'm sure. You know, all, all that stuff. And I had been hesitant to talk to her about coming to church because I knew that we'd been living there for a couple of years. Their car was always in the driveway on Sunday morning when we left. Their car was always in the driveway on Sunday morning when we came back home. I knew they didn't go to church, which means they weren't interested. It was Atlanta. There's more churches in Atlanta than DFW. There's plenty of choices. And then I just assumed they were pagan, evil people because I had seen beer bottles in their recycle can. And I was raised that if you ever have a beer, you might actually have the earth open up beneath thine feet and go straight into the pit of hell. We're going to talk about alcohol in a couple of weeks. But I, I just assumed they clearly are, you know, not interested in Jesus because I saw a beer bottle and they don't go to church. So I've been hesitant to engage in this conversation. And and so I asked her, hey, would you like to come? And and she was like, oh, that's really sweet, you know, like a kid would invite me to church. That's really nice of you, but no thanks, I'm not interested. I'm like, no, really, we'd love for you to come and join us. And then she said this. She said, I know I wouldn't be welcome at your church. And I said, oh, listen... We believe in a God who loves everyone no matter what you've done, no matter where you've been, no matter what you've been through. You would absolutely be welcome. Listen, I saw the beer bottle. Listen, you'll still... I didn't say that. You absolutely would, would be welcome in our church. And she said, oh, that's sweet. No, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be welcome. And I said, listen, listen. We serve a God who loves everyone. Everyone. You would be welcome in our church. And she said, I wouldn't be welcome in your church. And I said, I'm feeling a theme here. She said, listen, I understand what your church believes because my father is a Baptist deacon. And I know I'm not welcome in his church either. And I said, I'm so sorry. That breaks my heart to hear you say that. I don't know what's going on with your relationship with your dad I don't know what kind of hurt you've experienced in his church, but our church is not like that church. You are welcome in our church. And she said, you're not catching the hint, are you? I said, what hint? She said, this lady's not my cousin. She's my wife. We're married. I'm gay. And in that moment, I truly thought that's how hard she was dodging an invitation to church. And I said, instinctively, Oh, you're not a... And then I used a word that I had heard other church people use. I didn't know that it was a horribly, sinfully offensive word. And she was so kind and gracious. She just nodded and she said, That's actually a really hateful word. I said, I didn't know that. I'm so sorry. She said, I know you didn't know. You seem like a really nice young man. You never would have said that if you'd have known. I said, I really didn't. She said, that's like using the N-word. I said, I had no idea. She said, I know you had no idea, which is why I know I wouldn't be welcoming your church. That was almost 30 years ago. And that story still pulls at my heart and I wish I could build a time machine. In that moment, I meant well. But on behalf of Jesus, I sure didn't love well. And so let's look to God's Word so that we can love well. Grab your Bible, if you would, please. If you don't have a Bible, there's one underneath the seat in front of you. And if you don't own a Bible, that is our gift to you today. Um, And then we invite you to join with us in our tradition. What we do is we hold up our Bibles and say a creed before we dive in. Um, And so if that's where you are in your spiritual journey, then please hold it up in the air and say this with us together. The Bible is the Word of God. The truth of the Bible will change my life. Lord, open my heart and awaken my mind, and give me grace to respond. Change me for Your glory and my joy. Amen. Thank you so much. I'm going to ask you to turn to two places. We're going to start off in First Corinthians chapter six. It's page 898 in the the Bibles there in the seats, but. First uh, Corinthians chapter 6 is where we'll start, and then we'll go to Genesis chapter 1. I don't know if you need to put a finger in Genesis chapter 1. It's kind of easy to find, but uh, we're going to start off in First Corinthians 6 and then go to Genesis chapter 1. And, and we actually referenced First Corinthians chapter 6 last week as we were talking about sexuality and kind of laying the foundation. And it's one of the most well-known passages of Scripture about sexual immorality. It's one that the Apostle Paul uses familiar language. He uses this multiple times uh, in his teachings, and that is flee from sexual immorality. And he explains that the reason we should run from it, by the way, to the church at Corinth, surrounded by a, a different view in the culture at large of God's view of sexuality, he said, man, just run away from it. Don't get as close to it as you can. Run away from it because every other sin a person commits is outside the body. But for a believer, sexual sin's different because our bodies are the temple of the Holy Spirit of God. So glorify God in your body. But before He gives that practical instruction, He sets the stage with this profound image. I was I was studying David Platt's great work on this in his book Counterculture. So many good resources we've referenced throughout the series, but. He references this text as the starting point for our conversation this morning. And I thought it was so wise. In the middle of verse 13, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says this, The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord. And the Lord for the body. It's so profound. The the purpose of the designer, when he designed our bodies, he didn't design us for sexual immorality, He designed us for himself. Like we are for him. And then I love this. And he is for us. If we were designed to exist not for self, but for something outside of self, and that something outside of self wasn't good, that would still be the authority that we were under. How great is it that we exist for him? And he's good. He's for us. He is literally for our good. So he not only uh, gave us bodies that were designed by God, but for God, and he is for us. Here's what Platt said. He said, God wants you to experience the maximum joy for which your body is built. And as the creator of our bodies, he knows what will bring them the most pleasure, Listen, if, if we were to, to open up the, the glove box of the human body and take out the owner's manual, it would say, hey, here's what's best for you. It's not this idea that God is saying, hey, don't do anything fun. Here's the boring stuff you have to say. It, God is saying, I designed you for a purpose. And when you trust me, that's where you will enjoy vitality and wholeness and fullness of joy. And when we distrust the Creator, we're essentially saying, you don't know how my body works. (laughs) I know better. You don't know best. But God loves us so much that He gives us some healthy boundaries to guide us towards joy. And the amazing thing is, 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 as we see God's boundaries, and we'll discuss what they are in a minute a little more closely, but as we discuss God's boundaries... I want to lay the foundation first that it's, it's for our good. He's a good, loving Father. And, and so the reason that we talk about this among our local faith assembly and the reason we teach our children what God's ways are is because we love them and want them to enjoy God's best. Not because we're judging people who don't believe what we believe, uh, what we believe or, or condemning our neighbors or out to bash people or hate people. No, this is our conversation with the people who are open to hear what we have to say about what we believe is God's best design. And unfortunately we live in a, in a moment in history where that's considered hate speech. Unfortunately some people are saying it pretty hatefully. But just to believe what God says has made us, at best, dinosaurs out of touch with reality. History was made a few weeks ago. CNN hosted the first ever LGBTQ town hall. The huge group of people seeking the nomination from the Democratic Party to run for president in 2020, all gathered on this national platform on CNN. And here's the thing. Never before in the history of our country... Have presidential nominees gathered to talk about sex? What, what people choose to do in secret. It's so strange to me that this has become a national platform. In this town hall, though, there were a couple noteworthy things. The, the first one is this. Uh, Elizabeth Warren was asked a question. Senator Elizabeth Warren was asked, What would you say to a man who said that he believes... Marriage is to be between one man and one woman. And she responded in two ways. The first of which I 100% agree with. What would you say to a man who believed that marriage was between a man and a woman? Here's what she said. I would tell him, then go marry one woman. And that's a great answer. Truly, if this is what we believe, then we're supposed to do this and practice this. Matter of fact, we have the constitutionally protected right to do so. But then she said this. She said, that is, assuming you can actually find a woman who would want to marry you. And the crowd erupted with first laughter and then applause that she would imply that anybody who views the Bible's view of marriage would be unworthy of marrying And when I first heard that, i got to be honest, my first response was not one of love. We're talking about speaking the truth in love. I had a strong desire in that moment to speak some truth. Like, I believe that's what God says, and I've been happily married for over 20 years to more of a woman than you'll ever... But that's not helpful. That's not loving. My second thought, though, as I processed what she said, is I'm raising three boys, that are going to have a more and more difficult time to actually find a future wife who holds to a biblical worldview. This is the trend of where we're going as a culture. Later in the town hall, Beto O'Rourke was asked, do you believe that a Christian organization, a uh, college or, or church or charity, should lose its tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage. He unequivocally, quickly answered, yes, they should lose their, their tax-exempt status if they oppose same-sex marriage. Not if they aggressively bash those who disagree with them, not if they picket in the streets, no, if they just oppose that view. Very quickly, his uh, his handlers his campaign directors, quickly published a statement. Senator O'Rourke believes in the First Amendment, and what he meant by oppose same-sex marriage was actively, uh, angrily, aggressively oppose. He didn't mean just oppose as in they have those views. Please forgive him for misspeaking. What's interesting, I think, about that is I mean, here's the deal. O'Rourke has already said he doesn't believe in the Second Amendment, so why should it surprise us that he doesn't believe in the First Amendment? Right? Here's the thing. Like, th- this idea that we want a police state that says you can't gather in your faith gathering and have a view about sexuality that makes you hateful, that's un-American. Now, nobody has to agree with us. I don't think we should be screaming from the streets. Now, when the topic of gay marriage was open in the public forum for vote... We have a constitutionally protected right to engage in the conversation and share how our religious views shape that. That vote is long passed over. We resoundingly lost that vote from a biblical worldview. Our job is not to campaign about that anymore. But when someone asks us our view, we have a constitutionally protected right to answer based on our religious views. More than that, we have the right to gather in our house of worship and lovingly discuss those views. And more than that, we have the constitutionally protected right to teach our children those views. Are we on the same page here? And, and to, to threaten to fine or to, to remove tax exempt status because we don't agree with the culture literally means our faith is to be silenced. We can hold to this view, actually believing the most loving thing we can do is point to God's way. The most loving thing we can do is point to God's standards. As the designer, we believe his ways are best. So real quick, I want to run through some observations here. The first one is this. Despite what the culture says, God does care about sex. The, the, the noise of the culture is essentially, listen, God doesn't have an opinion anymore. It's what you choose. It's how you choose to, to do this. And, and it's out of touch to believe that God has said anything. So we quickly go to the genesis of the story quite literally. Genesis chapter 1. Real quick recap, because we've talked about this verse almost every week, and we'll talk about it again next week as we dive into the topic of gender. Verse 27 of Genesis 1, God created man. We believe that the reason God's in charge is because God is the creator. He's the origin of all this. Now, we believe that's the truth. The the reason we engage in loving conversation is because on every human kind, we believe He has created and placed His own image. Which means the people who have a different opinion about sex than us and the people who vote different than us and the people who believe different than us all bear the same image, the image of God. So if we approach these topics with hatefulness and with ugliness and with judgmental attitudes and behaviors, we're disrespecting not just the person, we're disrespecting the God whose image they bear. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. That's what God did. But remember that what God did is only part of the story. How he did it is equally important. We turn the page, Genesis chapter 2, verse 7. The Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground. Everything else he spoke into existence as his image bearers were so special to God that he formed us with his hands and then he breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature, a living creation, a living soul that's how much god values creation so god created man and then he gave man a job named the animals and in this moment god had a, had created this beautiful perfect world mankind exists without any sin without any fallenness without any depravity. and yet in the midst of all that perfection god said it's not good that man should be alone adam names all of the animals is like nope Not entering into a covenant with any one of these. Right? So then God gives some holy anesthesia. Verse 21, The Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. Now we talked about this a couple of weeks ago, and I don't know where this lands theologically, but some have said he didn't take a foot bone as though man should rule over the woman, and he didn't take uh, part of his skull as though the woman should lord over the man, but took from his rib because they are equals, and, and, and he took from near his heart because they're called to love each other, and I think that's probably more hallmark theology than like biblical theology, but nonetheless I think it's good uh, to help us understand this. And the rib, verse 22, the, the Lord had taken from the man he made into a woman. So again, here's God forming with his hands. The woman. Then the man said, this at last. Finally, it's not a zebra. Okay, this at last. is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken from man. Therefore. So based on how God designed humankind, and how God places him, therefore we draw this conclusion. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother, and hold fast... That is the language of covenant, to enter into a lifelong vow with his wife. And they too shall become one flesh. That is absolutely sexual language. So there's this idea that we reach a point of maturity, that we are sent out from our parents with their blessing, that they enter into a covenant before God and his people, and then they enjoy the sexual expression of intimacy. That is God's order. That is God's design. He placed that design and that plan in the Genesis moment. That's still God's view. And, and, and it says the, the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They, that, that idea of not being ashamed, that idea of freedom and, and of intimacy... Listen, God designed a better way for humankind, and literally, and I don't want to be crass here, but God literally formed with His hands, not just spoke with His mouth as though that were not enough, formed with His hands the parts that were intended to be used for sexual expression to fit together. This is God's design. This is the way that God created man and woman to come together and to be one flesh, Sex is not just this mechanical act between two objects. It's a relational bond between a man and a woman who've entered into a marriage covenant. Now here's the takeaway. David Platt said this. There's not one instance in all of God's Word where God advocates or celebrates sex outside of a marriage relationship between a husband and wife. Not one. Again and again throughout the Scripture, God reinforces that the Genesis model is His plan... And nowhere does he say that there's an exception to that plan. God has not changed his mind. The culture may have shifted in their opinion, but God hasn't. And here's why I say that. I am completely okay with someone telling me I don't believe that. That's fine. I don't believe that's what God says. That's fine. But don't tell me to believe that God never said it. Don't tell me God has changed his mind. That's out of date. That's out of touch. I believe it is crystal clear in Scripture. God's plan for sex is between a man and a woman in a lifelong covenant relationship. And I don't think that's changed just because the cultural opinion has changed. And the culture has never accepted the Scriptures. That's no big deal. I'm not fighting for that. Just don't tell me I'm not allowed to believe what God says. Does that make sense? P.S. And don't tell me I'm not allowed to teach my kids what I believe God says. He does still have an opinion. He does still have something to say. And he's put all kinds of boundaries around it. From the beginning, God said, listen, there are prohibitions against prostitution, against sexual violence, against sex with animals, against sex with a family member. And most of the culture agrees with those four things. Yep, you haven't offended us yet. For now. But here's the deal. Most of what God says about sex is actually boundaries for heterosexuals. He constantly tells men and women not to break their marriage vows. Adultery is one of the Ten Commandments to not commit. <laughs> sure, <clarity>. <laughs> <laughs> to not commit. <laughs> All right. Clearly, God is saying, I've got to get my composure back. God is saying, I have boundaries around this good thing because the body was designed for me and I'm for you. And so here's my path that I'm going to bless. There, there is clear teaching in Scripture that anything outside of God's boundaries, meaning marriage to one man, one woman, is against God's command. Not just in the Old Testament, but in the New Testament. This also includes sex between a man and a man, or a woman and a woman. As a matter of fact, the first time we even see that mentioned is in Leviticus. In the same passage where God talks about not having sex with animals, He says it's not God's will that a man would have sex with a man or a woman with a woman. And it would be easy for us to be like, man, that's Old Testament law. We're not under law anymore. That's outdated. Which some would argue... God barely even kind of mentions homosexuality in the New Testament, which I disagree with. But even if it's true, he does clearly speak about it. Here's the thing about Levitical law, right? There's different kinds of law. Real quick, we have civil law. When God was establishing a Jewish government, how they would rule their people, he gave civil law. He gave ceremonial law for his practices regarding worship and sacrifice. Those were specifically for the Jewish people in the Old Covenant. We do not see those things repeated in the New Testament. But the rest of God's law is what we would call God's moral law. Lying and cheating and sexual behavior. And we do see those things are timeless. They're connected to the character and nature of God. We do see them repeated in the New Testament. This isn't an idea that God has grown out of. God still cares about sexual purity. Secondly, quickly, God does not believe that sex is bad. Fascinating story from the book, uh, Misreading Scripture with Western Eyes, that tells the story. Tradition holds that the, the, the apostles gathered together after Jesus ascended and decided where they would go in the world. They cast lots. And tradition holds that who we call Doubting Thomas, right, that he went to India, began to pro- proclaim the gospel amongst a, a Hindu culture. He specifically preached strongly against fornication. Preached strongly against sexual sin. But here's the deal. His first ever sermon was at a wedding. And according to the Acts of Thomas, in apocryphal writing, the bride and groom were so moved by Thomas's persuasive presentation of this chaste gospel that they called off the wedding in the middle of the ceremony and committed to a life of celibacy. He broke up the wedding. And his teaching began to spread like wildfire that, that seemed to fit with the Hindu uh, mindset that, that saw that as, as immoral. And, and so he has this huge following. And surely what we read historically is everybody who was giving their life to Christ under Thomas's teaching was choosing a celibate lifestyle. I'd love to see how church attendance would decline today if we were teaching, yeah, no more. So he's, he's presenting this. One of his last converts, one of his last converts was Queen Miss Deus. The reason that she was one of his last converts is because she went home to the king and said, I just gave my life to Jesus. According to Thomas, you can't ever touch me again. And according to tradition, the king had Thomas executed. But he's not the only one who, who took this teaching a little too far. Even Tertullian, the early church father, devalued marriage because of the immoral expression within the marriage bed uh, throughout a lot of church history we've seen people who almost send the message that god created sex and then went ew right be fruitful and multiply but i'm not watching Ugh. right and i grew up kind of thinking that that was god's view of sex right you would almost get that the way that the church is here's the deal i believe god has a high view of sexual morality not a low view. He's contending honor sexuality by treating it as something valuable and precious. Right? I used the illustration in the last service that, that a fake diamond is just going to get thrown in the dirt and forgotten. But a truly expensive ruby or gem, you're going to hold it with honor. You're not going to let your kids run around and play with it and throw it in the air and play catch with it. And in the same way, I believe that God has a high view of sexual purity, which is why he's put some boundaries and some securities around this topic. Next observation I would make is this. Christians are not actually obsessed with the topic of homosexuality. In the fantastic book, A Practical Guide to Culture by John Stone Street, he talks about this issue that the, the thought of the culture at large is that Christians can't stop talking about homosexuality. Why are they so obsessed? But the fact is, that actually doesn't match reality. For over 2,000 years, church history has consistently believed that marriage belonged between a married man and a married woman. That's not new. But there's never been a huge emphasis on this topic in any of the, extra, uh, any of the historical writings. Why did we not make a huge deal about it? Here's one of the reasons why. Because God doesn't talk a ton about homosexuality. He talks way more about being saved He talks way more about having a relationship with Him. He talks way more about believing in a God who loves you and who's good and who gave Himself up for us. He talks way more about a heaven that we will spend eternity in or a hell that we will spend eternity in if we don't turn to God. This whole idea that Christians believe all homosexuals are going to burn in hell. No, listen, that's not something that's ever said with crassness or is limited to homosexuals. We believe that every person will spend eternity in either heaven or hell based on whether or not we've given our life to Jesus. are calling out some group for one thing. That's not the message of the Bible. Jesus talks, actually the whole New Testament, talks way more about caring for the poor than it does sexual sin. Talks more about what we do with our money, being good stewards, than it does about sexual sin. So the Bible isn't obsessed with this topic. And up until 30 years ago, church leaders almost never addressed these topics. Here's the thing. Christians haven't been obsessed with this topic because the culture hadn't been obsessed with this topic. This is the, uh, the issue of the day. And the church is scared to death to end up on the wrong side of history with this story. And so all of a sudden it's become this thing that's thrown in our face. You can't watch a sitcom with your kids without there being a, a storyline in there. And so we as the church have said, well, God does have an opinion about this. We should be able to respond. We should in a loving way be able to engage in this conversation. I've got to move on quickly for sake of time. Just because we believe that God has an opinion and God has something to say doesn't mean that true Christians think it's okay to treat gays and lesbians terribly. True Christians don't think it's okay. Matter of fact, they think it's reprehensibly wrong. The mistreatment of those who claim to be Christians, of the gay and lesbian community, is a disgrace and a defiance of the heart of Jesus Christ. Westboro Baptist does not speak for us. I believe that God is disgusted. I believe that God is more disgusted by Westboro Baptist than the things they are picketing against. Because they are uh, vilifying and spreading their hate in the name of a loving God. Matter of fact, I... It scares me that we're called Baptists. I think a lot of the culture thinks we're like Westboro Baptists. Dear God, let us just say publicly, we don't think that reflects the heart of our loving Father. We renounce that. To mistreat someone because... Here's the thing. We don't beat somebody up for having a different view about homosexuality in the same way that we don't beat somebody up for struggling with pornography. We don't think it's God's best... We want to walk with you towards God's best because that's what's for your good. This idea that the church is somehow homophobic because we don't think it's right. Listen, I'm not pornophobic. I'm not adulteryophobic. I'm not premarital sexophobic. And I'm not homophobic. I'm not afraid. This idea that if we have an opinion, we're hateful. I don't understand that. I think it's unhealthy to eat too many sweets. But I would tear up a donut right now. I, like, we don't even do what we think is best for us. We're not beating everybody else up because they're doing something that we think is wrong. Literally, this, this idea that if, if you don't agree with what I'm doing, you must hate me. That, that kind of small-minded, uneducated, dualistic thinking is unhealthy, is unproductive, and is unbiblical. I believe that all people are creating the image of God. And I believe, here's the thing, somebody who disagrees with me about what what kind of sex is okay or not okay, here's the thing, at the end of their day, they will never stand before my throne and give an account for what they did. They're not going to answer to me. But here's the deal, I will stand before a throne one day and give an account for what I did with my body. And more than that, I will also stand before a throne one day and give an account for how I taught my sons to behave with their bodies. And P.S., ever since I was nine years old when I was called to preach, I will now stand before the throne and give an account for did I respond to the noise of the culture from a biblical perspective, whether it was popular or not. I'll give an account for that. Now, what you do with that and what people who don't believe the Bible do with that, it's not, that's not my job, <laughs> I'm not out to fix that. But I'm allowed to have a worldview. There's this idea that if we are Christians, people assume automatically that we hate gay people. And I just don't think that's accurate. I read this fantastic story in um, A Practical Guide to Culture where one of the authors talks about a teenager coming to him heartbroken and saying, Man, I have this friend who means the world to me and he's gay and I don't know what to do because the church hates gay people. And the author said, whoa, 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 wait a second, who do you know who hates, you've been in church your whole life, who do you know who hates gay people? And he said the student went, huh, nobody, that's just what I've always heard, is that we hate gay people. Listen, I, I'm going to say this, I don't know of a single leader in the evangelical world who has any actual credibility that hates gay people. That's a false narrative that I want to publicly push back against. Just because we say, I don't think that's God's best, doesn't mean we're bigoted or hateful. That is a lie. That is an unfair characterization. And the next generation needs to hear us say, we can love people and disagree with them. We can love people who are different than us, who have different views than us, who vote different than us. God forbid. And I'm not saying mistreatment doesn't happen in the name of Jesus. I understand that it does. We just condemn that, and I believe our God condemns that. Quickly, I want to say this. I believe homosexuality is not nearly as common as the culture tells us. As a family with three boys, we watch a lot of superhero movies. Every time a superhero movie comes out, we go see it usually without their mother because she would rather do anything else other than watch another superhero movie. I actually, when my boys were very young, assigned a Marvel character to each of their personality traits that I will not publicly tell you. You can come see me later and I'll tell you. So this summer, a story went viral that Marvel announced that the first LGBTQ storyline will be introduced, specifically into the storyline of Valkyrie, within the Thor story arc. And I read several articles about this announcement. It was, I mean, it was a trending story. But there was one word that continued to show up in the articles that I just can't get past. It was this word. Finally. Finally, Marvel has included this majority portion of the culture into the storyline. And based on what we see on TV... We would think that this huge percentage of the culture identify as gay. But according to the Gallup organization, this is interesting, according to Gallup, Americans estimate that 25% of Americans are gay. When we're asked, how many, what percentage of Americans do you think are gay? Americans say at least 25%. But based on all research gathered, that number is only 4.5%. And by the way, 4.5% is actually kind of exaggerated. The number's more around probably three. That's the most generous research there is. And I just say that to say that, that if we don't tell our children, there's a different truth to the narrative. <laughs> this is, there is currently a ton of conversations happening among the mental health community about how to counsel young people who are in mental health crisis because they're not questioning. Secular therapists are discussing, what do I do with the growing depression that I see among straight kids who think they're weird because they don't have any same-sex attraction because the secular mental health community doesn't want to affirm heterosexuality so what do we do with this listen this this is actually not the majority of the culture the next thing i want to say is this and i said this last week so we won't spend much time here we are not defined by our sexual behaviors Again, the, the modern narrative is turning this into a civil rights issue. The modern narrative is I am the way I choose to have sex. We believe our identity is rooting in something much greater than that. We're image bearers of a holy God. Sexuality is what we do with our bodies, not who we are. And here's the thing. Every single ounce of scientific research about was the gay community born that way has revealed even among the strongest gay advocates, there is no scientific research that reveals that a person is born heterosexual or homosexual. there's zero scientific scientific evidence as a matter of fact, the fact that there's such a thing as the ex-gay community undermines this. But I would say this there is a sense in which we were all born. This way, whatever this way means for us. Meaning, we were all born to behave sexually in a way other than God's plan. Because I think we were all born loving self. And wanting to do whatever we wanted to do. And rejecting the authority of God. All of us. Here's a, a quote by David Platt that I think is profound. He said, we live in a culture that assumes a natural explanation of, Implies A moral obligation If I can explain myself naturally That means I'm obligated to do this An astounding article In time magazine several years ago Talked about that That there's a a certain scientist Who believes there's such a thing as For lack of a better word Adultery DNA That there's a predisposition Among certain men To commit adultery With the assumption that when the man is on his tenth girlfriend, he just tells his wife, Hey, I was born this way, so it doesn't matter. According to Jesus, those of us in the room that kind of have an anger problem, that means we have a natural explanation for committing murder. Listen, just because we have an anger problem doesn't mean we're obligated to kill people. Please. For the sake of all of us. A natural inclination is not a moral right You know why Because we all need a savior Every one of us needs a savior Left to our own we won't enjoy god's best Left to our own we won't take god at his word Left to our own we won't trust that god's way is the only way to life and wholeness and wellness We need a savior At the end of the day, I'm convinced that God desperately wants to love His people well. And either we trust that, or we think we're on our own. And I believe in a God that is for us. And that when we choose to disobey Him, He's made a way to have forgiveness, and grace, and acceptance, and freedom. Whatever that struggle is. We have a God who delights in carrying our struggles. Who delights in setting us free from our burdens. He loves us. And he's good. And he's not looking to drop a lightning bolt on people. He's not looking for opportunities to tell everybody everything wrong they're doing. He's looking to point us to a better way. Because he's the designer. He knows what's best for us. And I believe his heart is so good that he's worth trusting. Yesterday and today and tomorrow.